All right, just a bit of a recap from, from last week. We looked at everything that Jesus taught about divorce in the Gospels. Um, just kind of give you, I'm just going to recap a little bit here. Moses taught in Deuteronomy 24 that anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. And then Jesus responds as the new lawgiver. But I say to you, it's not just a matter of handing your spouse a bit of paper and it's a done deal. I'm paraphrasing here. There are proper and improper grounds for divorce. A person can't divorce their spouse for any and every reason. That was the controversy at the time, contrary to what Rabbi Hillel might say. I tell you, Jesus says, as the new lawgiver of the kingdom of God, that a man who divorces his wife for any cause that is not sexual immorality, she burns his food, she loses her looks, he doesn't love her anymore, that man causes his wife to become a victim of adultery, that is, when the husband remarries. That woman is still married to her first husband in God's eyes. They're still in a one-flesh union. And the woman uh, who marries that man, uh, she's committing adultery too. She's marrying uh, another woman's wife. No, another another. Another man's wife, right? Yeah, I got that wrong here in my notes. <laughs> so, how is that so? Just answer that. Why, why is that the case? Because there was no biblical grounds for the divorce in the first place. Sure, the second marriage may be perfectly legal in the, in the eyes of the state, but it's adulterous in God's eyes. And this would mean that the man who divorces his wife, except for the cause of sexual immorality, likewise, he ought not to remarry even as he ought not to have divorced his spouse in the first place. What Jesus teaches is that after the fall, God decreed and permitted divorce as one of the means to limit the foulness and the infidelity of this sinful world. Moses permitting a man to write a certificate of divorce did not reflect the true creation ordinance. It was a realization of the sinful hardness of people's hearts. Divorce is not part of God's perfect creation design. It's part of the fall. And if God, through the law of Moses, permitted divorce, he did so because sin can be so vile that divorce is to be preferred to continued indecency. This means any view of divorce and remarriage taught in either testament that sees the problem only in terms of what may or may not be done has already overlooked a very basic fact Divorce is never to be thought of as a morally neutral option, but always as evidence of sin, of hardness of heart. The fundamental attitude of the Pharisees to the question was wrong, as our own hearts are if we are preoccupied with the question, what is permitted? What is permitted? And as we go through life, we come across Christians who are thinking that very thing. We might think that very thing. And if you look back, now I know no one here is in this context, all right? But I'll just say it for the, for the ages of posterity. If you look back on your sinful divorce and remarriage and think, wow, am I ever glad I wasn't sitting in John's Sunday school classes 10 years ago? Uh, that is a dreadful sign that something is very wrong with your heart even now, Christian. If the spirit is at work, you won't think, phew, I really dodged a bullet there. Instead, you will think, oh, Lord, I am so sorry. I was ignorant of the scriptures. I was blind to my own sin. I have broken your law and sullied the name of Christ. Please forgive me, Lord. And you'll not only ask for the Lord's forgiveness, 
You'll make things right with your ex-spouse, with your kids, your parents, your in-laws. You'll make amends and ask for forgiveness with anyone else you hurt by you breaking your marriage vows. Clearly, Jesus aligns himself with what God says in Malachi 2.4, I hate divorce. Why? Jesus gives this response. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. That's the theological foundation. And if God has joined man and woman together according to the structure of the structure of his own creation, divorce is not only unnatural, but actually it's rebellion against him. God and human beings are so far apart on this issue that what God unites, sinful people divide. What God creates, rebellious image bearers destroy. Husband and wife are considered to be one flesh in the eyes of God. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Remember Ephesians 5, the, the one flesh union of human beings in marriage is a picture of the Christian's union with Jesus, with Christ as the bridegroom and his church as the bride. So that means Christian marriage is to reveal the mystery of Jesus loving his church. Christian marriage reproduces in miniature the beauty shared between the heavenly bridegroom and his earthly bride. Christian marriage is a billboard to the world advertising the reality of God uniting himself with fallen sinners, becoming one with them in spirit, which makes divorce then a satanic attack on what God has accomplished in the death and resurrection of his son. Divorce attacks the gospel. Divorce attacks that picture of God's amazing love for sinners. So now we'll press on with our last New Testament text, 1 Corinthians 7, the text which, along with sexual immorality, gives us the second and last God-granted concession regarding divorce and remarriage. And we're looking at the willful separation by the unbelieving partner of a spiritually mixed marriage because of the conversion of their spouse. So the plan is to look at this text and then some counter-arguments as to why there should be more than just these two grounds for divorce. Because Christians will say there should be more than two. There are more than two. We'll look at that. So if you have your PDF, let me just give you a, um, just an overview. Just biblical principles on divorce and remarriage. This is what I'm assuming. This is what Pastor Alex is assuming as we're going into this. Marriage is a sacred union between one man and one woman. And God's intention is for marriage to last a lifetime. Divorce is not always sinful. Divorce is permitted but not required on the ground of sexual morality. Divorce is permitted but not required on the ground of desertion by an unbelieving spouse. When the divorce was not permissible, any subsequent remarriage to someone other than the original spouse results in adultery. In situations where the divorce is permissible, remarriage is also permissible. Improperly divorced and remarried Christians should stay as they are but repent and be forgiven of their past sins and make whatever amends are necessary. So, 1 Corinthians 7, 10 to 15. Before we jump into that, anything I've just said here that you want clarification on? or That's kind of a recap from last week. So we're jumping into a new text now. So we're going to the Apostle Paul. 1 Corinthians 7, 10 to 15. To the married, that is, the married Christians in the church, I give this command. Not I, but the Lord. 
That is to say, Jesus himself spoke to this question during his earthly ministry. Paul is here. He is reiterating the teaching of Jesus. 10b. A wife must not separate from her husband on illegitimate grounds. Right? That's the assumed understanding here. It has to be because Matthew says there are grounds for divorce that are legit. So, but if she does, then Paul refuses to recognize the validity of the divorce. Verse 11. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. He's recapping what Jesus said. He himself said that. So that's, that's Jesus' teaching there through Paul. The first marriage is not considered to be annulled, just like Jesus said. She is still the wife of the man she divorced. She's not free to marry someone else. And a husband must not divorce his wife, again, on illegitimate grounds. That's the assumed understanding. Verse 12, to the rest, that is, to believers already married to unbelievers, I say this, I, not the Lord. That's to say, Jesus never talked about this during his public ministry, but Paul, as his apostle, now gives God's authoritative word. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer, and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer, and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. So Paul is talking about a spiritually mixed marriage, a mixed marriage that began with the couple both being unbelievers, and then the Lord saved one of them. And the apostle teaches us that the Christian who finds himself in such a circumstance is not permitted then to pursue divorce. In this instance, the path of obedience is to be married to an unbeliever. But now that their spouse has become a Christian, the unbeliever can't stand it, despite the Christian's best efforts to hold the marriage together. I, I put that part in there because <laughs> you don't want to be just an absolute jerk, you know, to try to break it up and try to weasel around this. Despite the Christian's best efforts to hold the marriage together, the unbelieving spouse wants a divorce. They didn't sign up to be married to a Bible-thumping Christian. They want out. So, brothers and sisters, I would argue that the context, the grounds for this exception this concession is so specific. It's very specific. We need to understand that. Verse 13, And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer, and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For, verse 14, The unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. So, and there's... there's Quite a bit of confusion, I think, about what those verses are saying, but just to give you an overview here. We see here what's occasioned these questions on the Corinthians' part of divorce and remarriage. They're asking Paul, Look, Paul, if I have left behind my old life and I'm now a new creation in Jesus Christ, does not my relationship with my unbelieving, unrepentant spouse and my entire home atmosphere threaten to pollute and corrode my purity? Will I not be defiled? I'm in this one flesh relationship, you know, with this total pagan now. And Paul says, no, it actually works the other way around. The Christian sanctifies their spouse. If the unbelieving spouse is willing to stay married to the Christian, the lifestyle of the Christian partner will affect the ethos and to some extent the values and lifestyle of the home. 
The Christian will be exercising moral influence, exerting moral influence. The Christian spouse's example, their witness, their prayer, their living out of the gospel, make the spouse in this very limited sense sanctified, holy. And if the spouse falls under the influence of the Christian partner's faith, lifestyle, prayer, and living out of the gospel, how much more than the children? Even if only one parent is a believer, children will be marked by an element of shaping and, and difference as compared to a completely pagan environment. Verse 16, how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? As Lightfoot puts it, what Paul is advising here is the sacrificing of much, the supposed ease of divorce from a difficult partner, for the possible attainment of what is great gain, the conversion of your spouse. The New Living Translation writes this, Don't you wives realize that your husbands might be saved because of you? And don't you husbands realize that your wives might be saved because of you? So when a married man or woman hears and responds to the call of the gospel, but their spouse does not, the new believers should so live that in due time, God willing, they might save their spouse. Their home now is their primary mission field. 1 Peter 3.1, we just looked at this last week, right? Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands. If any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. When they see the purity and reverence of your lives. That's a compliment to this text. Don't divorce the unbelieving spouse. Instead, display the power of the gospel in your life. And if your unbelieving spouse is willing to live with you, that means they're going to have a front row seat to the transforming power of the gospel. And I said this last week, but I'm, I'm personally very close, uh, family, friends, where this actually was the case for 35 years. Uh, the Lord used my father to lead the wife to Christ, but the husband wanted nothing to do with Jesus. And then 15 years ago, the Lord saved the husband. So in their late 60s, the couple became, for the first time, a Christian couple. 35 years of faithfulness on the part of the wife. But if the unbeliever leaves, verse 15, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. That is, spouses are not stuck in the slavery of a no-man's land. They have no spouse because the unbelieving partner willfully separated from them and yet are not able to remarry because they remain married in God's eyes. No, they're free. But, I'd be in the minority with this, but we're seeing something very specific here, I would argue, and it's so specific, in fact, that this kind of desertion almost never happens in our culture. This is the willful separation by the unbelieving partner of a spiritually mixed marriage because of the conversion of the spouse. Now, that's not unknown in Muslim countries, and it's quite lopsided. It's almost always the husband divorcing the wife when she becomes a Christian. But this sort of thing rarely happens in our culture. I, I actually can't think of any stories personally, that I actually heard of this. So, uh, now, truth be told, and, you know, let's hear this in the spirit in which it's given, in most abandonment cases, circumstances in Canada, abandonment broadly conceived, sexual immorality, pornea, will be occurring within a few years at the outside anyway. Which then will sever the marriage relationship in God's eyes and open up the possibility, I would argue, of remarriage. Did you follow that? 
In most abandonment circumstances in Canada, abandonment broadly conceived, sexual immorality will be occurring within a few years at the outside anyway. The person took off and now they're sowing their wild oats, whatever it is. So there's going to be pornea in that person's life, usually, uh, which then will sever the marriage relationship in God's eyes and open up the possibility of remarriage. But that doesn't always happen. They could just leave and just remain celibate the rest of their life. Uh, what then? The Christian has two options. Live under the worship of Christ and in obedience to his word, or don't. Again, the point of all this is not to familiarize ourselves with the exceptions so that when divorce is permitted, so that we know when divorce is permitted, we're kind of like these Weasley divorce lawyers who know all the loopholes. No, the loathing God has for divorce is evident in just how seldom it's accepted. Never. It's, it's always on the basis of prior sin, and it's never the morally neutral option. And if we, can, if we care more for our own happiness, our own well-being, our, 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 our sexual, our emotional fulfillment, than being subject to the Lordship of Christ and living in obedience to His Word, then we'll pick being adulterers. This goes back to the Wolfgang and Gretchen example I gave last week, right? And we'll be adulterers not just in the marital sense, but also in the spiritual sense. What I'm saying is there are very specific and few grounds for divorce. If, those, if that is not fulfilled, then there isn't the hope of remarriage. You may be celibate the rest of your life. It's possible. So we're going to look, are there any additional legitimate grounds for divorce? But any questions about that? I do have a question. It says, uh, I don't know if I understood correctly. So, for example, if, uh, you know, there's uh, this couple and the wife becomes a Christian and, uh, you know, this, uh, the husband decides to abandon, if, it's, if there is no sexual immorality, the wife is not allowed to remarry in the future? That's what I'm saying, yes. Yeah. Because it has to be, that's why I was saying, usually in our culture, when that happens, mm -hmm. there's that abandonment and there's going to be pornea happening pretty yeah. soon anyway, right? But not in every case. And this is where the rubber hits the road, where it's like, well, if you're convinced of my argumentation, then it's like, well, that means I, I do need to remain celibate. If they're remaining celibate, we're still a one flesh union. My husband or my wife is sitting against me, they abandon, all this kind of stuff. There isn't a biblical grounds for divorce here. And it's like, what does that, what does that mean then? This is very unlikely. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Which in our culture is almost unheard of. I've never heard of it in our culture. Mm -hmm. I know a couple of people where it's like, yeah, my wife's a Bible thumper and I can't stand it, but I love her. You know, it's like, you know, it's the kind of a deal with, you know, so. But again, Muslim countries is more prevalent. Okay. Let's, uh, let's just, while we're at it, let's go into the, <laughs> the really controversial stuff. Are there any additional legitimate grounds for divorce? In addition to the two grounds of sexual immorality and desertion by an unbeliever because the person became a Christian, are there any other legitimate biblical grounds for divorce? Now, we talked about this a little bit last week as well, right? Or if you become a paraplegic, brain-damaged person, it's like, you know, you can't even remember your wife's name. You know, should she just, you know, divorce you? And that's okay. Let's look at divorce because of physical abuse. Some have argued that repeated instances of physical abuse should be an additional legitimate ground for divorce, for at least three reasons. The abuser has separated 
from the marriage. Not physically left the home, but separated relationally. And so 1 Corinthians 7.15 would apply. So it's argued. Number two, while the abuse is not technically adultery in the sense of pornea, sexual immorality, in Matthew 19.9, it is another kind of immoral conduct that also destroys the marriage covenant or the one flesh relationship, Genesis 2.24, that is essential to marriage. So physically beating your spouse is another kind of immoral conduct that destroys the marriage covenant or the one flesh relationship, it is argued. Three, by specifying two conditions that so deeply damaged a marriage that divorce is that so deeply damaged a marriage that divorce is allowed. Jesus and Paul implied there might be other conditions, such as repeated violent physical abuse, that would damage the marriage so deeply as to justify divorce. In those cases as well. Four, physical abuse is such a serious violation of a husband's responsibility to care for and protect his wife that it breaks the marriage covenant. And the text we go to for that is Exodus 21.10. We're going to come to that in a minute. That's, that's become a very popular text in recent years. We're going to look at that later on. Exodus 21.10. But a strong, now, okay, a strong motive behind these arguments is the recognition that physical abuse of a wife by her husband, or in, in some cases, physical abuse of a husband by his wife, is deeply evil and severely damages the marriage relationship. The recognition of this evil then prompts an instinctive sense among Christians that something must be done to protect the abused partner from suffering further abuse, right? And that's a good instinct. Uh, is not divorce the most obvious and cleanest remedy for such a situation? That's, that's the debate. So some authors, for whom I have the highest respect, have argued that physical abuse and perhaps other serious offenses that severely damage the marriage relationship, like you, your husband becomes a junkie, you know, um, also constitutes a sufficient ground for divorce. For example, John Frame, have you heard of him? Um, he would allow divorce when an unbelieving spouse can no longer make, quote, a credible claim to be upholding his marriage vows, whether because of physical or verbal abuse, emotional entanglements with people other than the spouse, failure to provide, literal desertion, and so on. But he also specifies that, quote, the church should recognize divorces in these cases only when all available remedies have failed. But he's broadening it beyond pornea and abandonment. I, and I recognize the force of this type of reasoning, and in the case of physical abuse, I strongly agree that something, and perhaps several things, uh, must be done quickly to prevent the abused spouse from having to endure further suffering. As, as soon as church leaders become aware of a situation of physical abuse, they should act to bring the abuse to an immediate halt. Uh, filing a complaint with local police and pressing charges may be appropriate because violently attacking one's spouse and doing physical harm is a criminal act and subject to legal penalties. Quite frankly, the husband might be someone who needs to be in jail. His wife or the kids, they're going to end up in a hospital or in the morgue. And pastorally, I just, I would put this out to you, okay? I would have no qualms about encouraging the abused spouse to separate and move to another, perhaps undisclosed living location for the eventual purpose, Lord willing, of bringing restoration of the marriage along with the complete cessation of the abuse. 
As I argued in a previous lesson in this ethics class, when a person is facing the likelihood of physical assault, self-defense, or fleeing from the danger are both morally right actions. In addition, other actions may need to be taken, and these will vary from case to case. These actions may include church discipline, confrontation, counseling, and perhaps other kind of intervention by church members, family members, and friends. Uh, I just I want to reiterate this. Using every available means, the abuse must be stopped. And the abused spouse must be protected. And God forbid, but if you need to call me or Alex at 3 in the morning, do it. We won't even... I actually, I sleep with my phone. I have the headphones in, and uh, if you call me at 3, I will hear it, and I will come to your house immediately. Alex and I both will. However, I'm not persuaded that physical abuse is another ground for divorce according to the biblical teaching. <clears throat> my response to the arguments on the other side are these. Number one, in 1 Corinthians 7.15, when Paul says, if the unbelieving partner leaves, the Greek verb in this context would not have suggested to Paul's original readers a relational alienation, but a physical separation. The same verb is used in verse 10 to say the wife should not separate from her husband. This is something that and, and again, as you go from church to church to church, evangelical, they love the Lord, they're doing their best to, you know, what does the scripture say? When it comes to divorce, remarriage, you're going to have different churches saying different things. And one of the things that um, Alex and I would disagree with, but that is quite popular, I think, in evangelicalism, is abandonment becomes the great catch-all drip pan category that, legit, that makes divorce legitimate. Um, this, this comes up quite often where you're just, you're just in a rotten context, a rotten situation for marriage, and you can almost apply, a, they've abandoned you spiritually, they've abandoned you emotionally, they've abandoned you, the, he's, he's a drug addict, alcoholic, gambler, a degenerate, he's abandoned you, he, you know, all this kind of stuff. It just becomes a blanket thing that covers a multitude of sins, and you, you can kind of baptize it with, well, 1 Corinthians 7, abandonment is grounds for divorce. It becomes the great catch-all drip pan category. But it's, it's talking about physical separation. It's not emotional or relational separation or drug-addicted you know, separation, anything like that. Number two, while pornea in Matthew 19.9 refers to a broad range of sexual sins outside the bounds of marriage under the term sexual immorality, it is not used to refer to other kinds of immorality that were not sexual in nature, such as physical abuse. Although Paul, number three, with his apostolic authority, was able to add an additional ground for divorce, that fact does not give us, as people who do not have such apostolic authority, uh, the freedom to write new words of Scripture. The freedom to add any additional grounds for divorce on our own initiative nearly 2,000 years later. In addition, Paul was giving his apostolic judgment regarding a new situation that Jesus did not teach about. A Christian married to a non-Christian. Jesus wasn't referring to that. But abuse within marriage is not a new situation that has only arisen in the 21st century. And from time immemorial, husbands have been beating up on their wives. Given the sinful hearts of human beings, physical abuse within marriage was occurring at the time of Jesus' earthly ministry as well. Yet neither Jesus nor Paul taught 
that abuse provided a legitimate ground for divorce. Uh, let me just say one more thing. The argument, number four, that physical abuse breaks the marriage covenant. This is very common. Physical abuse breaks the marriage covenant, introduces a new category into the discussion. The category of breaking a covenant. And I've, I've, I've had talks with pastors about this very thing. And it just opens it up wide. Here's your marriage vows. You broke your covenant because you did this, 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 and this. And it opens it up more broadly than just pornea and abandonment. Neither Jesus nor Paul use that category, breaking of the marriage covenant, in teaching about divorce. So I do not think it's legitimate to affirm that breaking the marriage covenant is a biblical standard to use in deciding when divorce is legitimate, and then to begin to list various kinds of sin that might fall into this very broad category. Such reasoning would likely open the door to a multiplication of sins that break the marriage covenant. You're married to an alcoholic degenerate. Of course, that, make, that breaks the marriage covenant, your vows that you said you know, on your wedding day, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, such reasoning would likely open the door to a multiplication of sins uh, that break the marriage covenant so that not just physical abuse, but many other sins would be counted as valid grounds for divorce. Still, I, I, I hope this is coming across, I deeply, deeply sympathize with the deep concern of those who argue that divorce should be allowed for ongoing physical abuse. I sympathize with that. For they understand the destructive evil in such a situation, and it seems easy to conclude that divorce is the best solution. I mean, using my human judgment, I would put that in the margin. If, as I evaluate things, that should be, you know, the paraplegic brain-damaged person in the car accident, that could be one. If your husband beats you up, that could be another grounds for divorce. I'm very sympathetic for that personally. I, I feel emotionally attracted to this solution. I wouldn't be surprised if we all did. Uh, but I simply cannot see a legitimate way to justify it from the teachings of Scripture. And in this matter, as in all ethical matters, God's Word and Scripture must remain our ultimate guide and standard. Um, my reluctance in this matter stems in large measure with the strong wording in Jesus' teaching in which he seems so clearly to be excluding other grounds for divorce. Just hear this again. Matthew 5.32 But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the grounds of sexual morality makes her the victim of adultery. Whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Matthew 19.9 And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. He could have easily have said and physical abuse. It was going on all the time. Questions about that? We're going to look at um, divorce because of marital neglect and emotional neglect. There's a guy called David Stone Brewer. He's quite has a very famous position on this. We'll get to that in a second. But just questions about this physical abuse and feeding. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned physical abuse as not a grounds for divorce. My question is in two parts. So. Would, would you consider rape as, um, sorry, I'm question. Would you consider rape as a type of sexual immorality? And if so, is that grounds for divorce? Rape within marriage? Yes. So that would be. Again, we're going to look at pornography here in a minute, right? So 
how you're defining this, all this, like, First Corinthians 7 comes into this as well, but it could certainly be rape, rape in marriage, for sure. Like sexual abuse. Too. Yeah, oh, for sure, yes. Pornea, sexual immorality, right? Yeah. Bestiality, child molestation, you name it. Right. Yeah. That's why the King James Version has adultery, and it's too narrow a category. It's a bad translation. It's sexual immorality. So it opens you up to things like, you know, just all the terrible things you can think of that are sexual in nature. And we are probably next week going to be looking at pornography and is that grounds for divorce? You had a second question, though. Oh, yeah, that was, is porn considered? Right, right, yeah. Good? Yeah, um, so I guess my question is on the Greek term in verse 10, verse 15. I think it's Jerusalem, if I'm saying it right. So the ESV translates and separates. Mm. And it seemed like you were kind of saying that it's not separates. It's actually, it, it seems like verse 10 you're treating it as a synonym for divorce. In it is, verse, yes. In verse 10, so in verse 15, you were treating it as a separate category. Like another kind of term. That they just they abandoned and took off? Yeah, so it seems like yeah. in, in verse 10 it means divorce, in verse 15 it means abandoned. I need to, is it is it the same Greek word in both? Is, is it all in all three cases? In sorry, in both cases. Because there's there's verse seven as well, right? Is that okay? Well, I was looking just at verse ten and verse uh, fifteen. In Corinthians seven. Yes. So yeah, First Corinthians seven ten. So the married and discharged not that about the Lord. The wife should not separate. I'm not sure what the NIV says. So that's. You're treating that like it's should not divorce. Right. Okay. But then in verse 15, but the unbelieving then, and, then, and then the husband has the same word after that though, right? No, the husband has a different word, which is kind of also my, my question. Is, yeah. The husband says divorce, the wife says separate. It, there, would, there wouldn't have been a distinction in this culture with, with that. And they're also not thinking of like separate in the sense of how we think of separate. But I'm saying, it seems like you were treating it like it's a different concept. The separates in verse 15. You didn't treat that as divorce. You treated that as abandoned, not divorces. What does the verse 15 say? Uh, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. Yeah, divorce. Yeah, it, oh. it, it, affects, it affects a divorce. That, that action oh. is, is actually improved. So it's slightly different, but that if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. Essentially, he's affected a divorce. Then Paul said that's permissible. And that's how we do it. So it is... So it's always the book. This whole term is being divorced. There's no distinction. In this passage, I would say, said 10 and 15 are, are referring to, like, it's, it's sort of like a different, like, like, it's not one to one, I think, 10 and 15, there's like a different sense of it, but it, it's, one is just talking divorce, and the other is talking this action of separating is affecting divorce, like, let it be so. Okay, okay. Like, divorce. Why in verse 10 is it different for the white? <laughs> Well, I think it's like an action is supposed to like that. But I think we're saying the wife shouldn't separate versus the husband shouldn't divorce. Is there a reason why it's not just shouldn't divorce? It would be the same. There isn't, there, don't get, make too fine a distinction oh. between separate and divorce. It's, it's, it's understood to be the same thing. Oh. Yeah. It is talking in, in this Why is that in the Bible here, I guess? <laughs> <laughs> I guess you have to think about this, it's not the same as like from an ancient old computer, right? This is like current in the first century. I don't know what the divorce procedures were, how legalized it was, because it certainly wasn't as like real practical as we have today. Right. I guess it's just I guess maybe it's my own like I guess 
legal training. Once it's, it's a different term, the presumption is there's a reason why you're using a different term. Unless there's not a yes. I guess I, to do the if we, it sort of make it, it feels a little bit like a, to distinguish physical abuse from sexual abuse or sexual morality more generally, it seems like a bit of a um, making a distinction that in practice is rarely a distinction um, because it's, it's a sort of abuse against the body using the body kind of thing. Um, I'm not sure I'm expressing this very well, but it's, I don't know, it's, it's sort of, it seems different, it seems different to me than sort of into a part of violence that it gets called seems different to me than like, you know, he's just acting in a simple way against me in a more general sense. Um, you know, like, like, you know, spending our money badly or you know, being a drunkard or whatever. Sure. Yeah. Um, it, I don't know, it's, it seems like the, the two categories do go together. In a relationship, I, mean, I, I could see, I mean, sexual violence, and that can maybe to your question, like, yeah, that's I would be pornea. It's, it's sexual morality, it'd be violence could be linked with other things too, I suppose. I, but like, I guess I have a problem, like, drawing a bright line between, you know, how do you say what's sexualized and what's not? Like, I mean, this gets very, obviously, the individual circumstances are very individual, but, um, you know, someone's hitting their wife every day, you know, like, in terms of like an embodied That is a, a kind of a growing popular understanding of that, where it's actually the marriage covenant itself has been broken. We're going to look at this Exodus text here in a second as well, where it's like that emotional neglect and the, the providing for neglect has been there as well. Um, I, I would, I know, I, I would, I can see what you're saying, Alicia, but I can also, I would, it's almost like the, the, that, that famous quote the judge said, where it's like, how do you define pornography? Because I know it when I see it. You know, it's like, what, what's sexual morality? I, you know, I've, I've been a pastor for 15 years. I know it when I see it. I'm just a human being. I know it when I see it. And if, it's, if, you're, if you're beating up your wife or you're, you know, that's one thing. And, I, and I'm, you know, I, I, wouldn't, I just wouldn't want to kind of make it kind of the thin end of the wedge here where it's like, well, this just, if you can't kind of determine between like rape is violent, but it's actually, it's also sexual morality, but then you can't, it gets blended with just using your fist and punching your, your wife in the stomach or something. It's like, I would want to be able to draw a distinction between that. I think, I think the Bible does. I think Jesus does, explicitly. Um, Alex? I think on that question, we come down to two questions. Obviously, defining pornea, one of the, what are the limits of pornea. But then the second, and what you said is correct, there's no right line. There is, there, every situation, no matter where we draw the lines on grounds of divorce, the lines aren't right, and they require wisdom and a lot of case-by-case evaluation. So that, that's not the truth, that yeah. it's not right. I Yeah. Um, and I also get the point that very often, you know, when these things happen, someone's gone off and they've 
the sexual and sexual immorality is a part of it anyway. Mm. It's really not. Mm. <laughs> it's really not the case in these, in these situations. So. Anyone with a super dark part of this, but I mean, serial murder is often sexual. You know, like, it doesn't have to mean there's like a sort of sexual act involved with it as well. So like that could be that blending of like murder and and and. If your husband gets caught doing that, you know. Anyway, that's a crazy example. But it's true. Like, actually, there are there is a blending sometimes between violence and sex. So it's like, how do you determine that? But ninety-nine cases out of hundred, I, I think, would be pretty. I think would be pretty easy. But that's that's just physical abuse. That is that is neglect. That is just being a you know a terrible human being. And this is actually sexual immorality. Like, I think I can make those distinctions, but we'll have to see. Again, this comes down to wisdom, the, the pooling of wisdom, being in a church context, church discipline. By the way, just to throw it out there, we're going to be stopping, we're not going to get to Instone Brewer. Um, if, if, as you're a member of this church, and as you're pursuing divorce, the, you know, the church is going to be involved in that. And you're going to want to have counsel and guidance and you know, pastoral insight into is this legitimate and are these good grounds? And if it's not, you know, there's going to be, oh, there aren't biblical grounds for divorce. It's like that's going to end up being my Matthew 18 church discipline context, right? Is this person a believer? Are they willing to repent? The whole church said, no, you can't, you can't divorce your wife because you found somebody else who's sexier. And it's like you need to repent or you're going to be excommunicated in this church. It becomes a church thing. So just to, all, to every married couple, that's an encouragement. I'm going to be held accountable for my, my relationship with my wife. And my church is going to hold me to account for that. And I need to be repenting of sin and not pursuing something in a selfish way way and uh, but to restore it. So I say one thing. Yeah. Uh, I, I think with all of this obviously it feels like kind of like these conversations become cheap in the sense of talking something so repulsive and so evil and we're drawing the line so close that it's it's like well what are we doing here? I mean, this is just like just just put it away. And I think like this is good and we think this is repulsive evil and we're thinking that category but what we don't have, what we have to train ourselves as Christians is to repulse and hate, and this is what you brought up the Malachi text, divorce as a, as a dividing of the, of the gospel portrait and how evil that is. That needs to be weighed on the other side in all these discussions. And I think that's not natural to us, like that's spiritual, but it's also like we need to be working on that and keeping that front and center, I think, throughout all these conversations. And there's always legal recourse. We live in a country where there is legal recourse. Thank God for that. You know, different cultures where Jesus is being taught, there is no legal recourse, really. You're just stuck. You know, your master, your slave, your master beats you, tough. You're, you, know, you, can't, you can't really do anything about that. And Paul talks about that in First, in, uh, first Peter 2. Um, but we in Canada, by God's grace, have legal recourse. And so if a woman's being beaten up, you know, the cops can get involved, the courts can get involved, there can be prison time, there can be, she can be, you know, and again, I think that's a very good thing. It's a good thing. It's not contradicting anything that's being said here. Okay, well, on that note, we'll end. We're going to look at uh, some further understandings of other grounds for divorce and then looking at pornography as well. That'll be next week, Lord willing. We're going to stop this here, though.